Welcome to this special Global Exchange webinar, part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. I'm your host, Colin Robertson. Today, we'll talk again with David Coletto and Frank Graves on how Canadians view Canada and the world. One of our most popular offerings as we began last year, Frank and David graciously agreed today to help situate our awareness of Canada and the world as we begin 2023. Frank and David, welcome back to Global Exchange. Thanks for having us, Colin. Yeah, glad to be here. David is a member of the CJAI Advisory Council and a founding partner and CEO of Abacus Data. Frank is a CJAI Fellow and founder and CEO of Ecos Research Associates. When it comes to applied social research and expertise in public opinion, the work done by David and Frank and their respective institutions is relied on by governments, business, civil society, the media, scholars, and students, and foreign diplomats. I encourage you to go to the websites of both Abacus Data and Ecos, where you will find a rich trove of research into Canadian attitudes. David Coletto, over to you. I'm going to jump into just some uh, initial um, data and thoughts on, on how I'm seeing kind of the state of, of the broader mood of the country and, and where things are. Obviously, you know, we're still um, dealing with the effects of the pandemic. It's, it's, you know, every day I have a conversation with someone in some way talking about the effects that it's had on, on workplaces, on, on the, the mood of the public, on how it's affecting our, our economy, and, and no doubt these days uh, a real focus on our healthcare system and, and the lasting effect that it's having on, on, uh, on uh, labor shortages and, and access to care that, that's really focusing conversations uh, both in Ottawa and provincial capitals across the country. I wanted to give you a, a, just a quick snapshot of some of the, the research we've done recently and, and, and speak more, set up the conversation I think that we're going to have today about what might we expect for 2023 in, in terms of the public's reaction and, and a little bit of look back in 2022 because Colin, when, when you had Frank and I on um, about a year ago, I don't think I certainly, I mean, the world's hard to predict. We would have predicted that, uh, you know, a month later um, or a few weeks later, Ottawa would have been under siege um, with the convoy. And then a few weeks after that, uh, Vladimir Putin and Russia would have invaded Ukraine and, and that war would still be ongoing. So the world is, is inevitably unpredictable. And I think that's the starting point to understand how the public reacts to, to what's going on. But if you just think about, you know, everything that's happened, um, in the typical person's experience over the last year, um, it's it's quite it's quite significant. Um, and it's not to say there hasn't been moments in history where, you know, the kinds of events that the that the that people have experienced, um, either directly or indirectly or observed, hasn't been important. But you know, it's not I think a surprise that and I love this word that the Collins Dictionary Word of the Year for 2022 was perma crisis, right? And the, the very idea of a perma crisis is that you know an extended period of instability and insecurity, but the psychology of perma crisis is even more important, I think, for public opinion researchers like like Frank and I, in that it it affects the way we anticipate or how we deal with new events, new information, this onslaught of just bad news um, that and what it affects it has on our day-to-day -day lives, on the way we view politics, on the way we assess and, and evaluate our choices in a political world and in a broader public policy debate. And so that's really what I'm 
going to just spend a little bit of time talking about is, you know, how are Canadians reacting to a world that really seems in constant crisis, that we are moving from one crisis to the next, and the pandemic obviously had a big part of that, but it's beyond that now, um, both economic in terms of the cost of living and the rise and rising interest rates, whether it's global affairs and climate change and uh, continued crisis in, in healthcare, most broadly from the pandemic perspective, but also at, at the individual level and in trying to access care. I think you start with this basic premise that the mood of the country right now isn't that great. Um, and I don't think any of the data I'm sharing or Frank will share is, is all that surprising, but I think it sums up the state of mind of a country that um, is feeling quite down, right? Only 30%. And I say only because this is the lowest we've seen um, this, this measure in, in many years. Um, I actually, you know, it's been more than five or six years that I can recall us getting anywhere near 30% saying the country's headed in the right direction. And it means that far more people, more than half, think the country's headed off on the wrong direction. Um, and this is just the trend line um, going back to the beginning of January of 2020, so two, um, so three years ago, and you can see it's ebbed and flowed, and it and it reacts to the the events of the day. But this is a, a low point in our tracking. It's never been particularly high um, over the course of the pandemic, but it did reach at points in in different aspects of the pandemic. You know, we were getting close to 45, 50 percent of people saying the country's headed in the right direction, but then very quickly um, that would correct itself or change as a result. Now, the, now, if there's an upside to this, it's that Canadians are actually far more pessimistic about the direction of the world and of the United States, for example, than they are of their own country. So even fewer think the world's headed in the right direction today or, or the United States. We just finished a survey um, last night that these numbers, you know, mimic. And then the data I'm sharing here comes from research we did in, in December, but um, nothing over the course of the holidays season um, has changed, I think, the public's perception uh, and view of, of where the country's headed. And so this is the broad mood of the public. Now, when we ask people to rank, um, you know, top issues, um, and we give them a list of things and they can pick up to, they pick three, um, here's the current issue set that, that we see is, for most people, three and four, the cost of living, inflation is one of their top three issues. Another half say healthcare, and then you get the economy, housing affordability, and climate change rounding up the top five. And what we've seen in our tracking, um, we've been asking this question every few weeks for, for a number of months now, is that healthcare is slowly but surely rising um, in relative to these others. And an issue like climate change is falling uh, uh, down the agenda. Now, I will say it doesn't mean that, you know, even, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine down at the bottom of this list, which I think from a global perspective is probably uh, and Colin, your colleagues and Dave uh, Perry at, at, at uh, the Institute will, will say this has been a, a huge event and we should be really worried and really focused on the implications of this. Um, it's not to say that Canadians aren't aware of it or don't think it's important. It's just relative to other things. Um, it's, it's not making the top three. Um, and, and so the conversations that, 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 that are really focused right now is people um, on, on basic pocketbook issues and an increasing concern that the healthcare system um, is incapable of delivering um, what people expect it to be able to deliver. Now, part of what I do and Frank does is trying to understand what are the political implications of this. We're not likely, I don't think, going to have a federal election in 2023. We have a really big, important provincial election in Alberta 
and uh, provincial election in Manitoba and PEI later this year. But federally, we shouldn't see an election. But it doesn't mean that the the, the, the ruminations and the debate and the conversations that are going to be happening in Ottawa around these issues are not going to be reflective of how the public's feeling. And so when we ask people who care about climate change, for example, which party do they trust most to deal with that issue? Here's an issue where you can see the Liberals have a substantial advantage over their primary opponent, the Conservative Party. The Greens naturally do well there and the New Democrats fall down at third. But beyond climate change. And this is where we start to get into the conversation about are the Liberals positioned well for to be reelected and whenever that next election comes, could Pierre Polyev uh, become Prime Minister? Can the Conservatives form a government? At least right now I'm looking at data that suggests the Liberals are in a, quite a difficult position because on the top issues that I just showed you earlier, um, they're nowhere to be seen in terms of having issue ownership. On housing affordability, they're in third behind the New Democrats and the Conservatives. On the economy, among people who say the economy is their top issue, as we economists tell me, it's hard for us pollsters to predict, but certainly consumer confidence is, is declining. The Bank of Canada released um, some new numbers the last few days that shows consumer confidence, business confidence is souring over time. Those who care about the economy, by almost a two to one margin, say the Conservatives are who they think would do, be better than the Liberals. Look at the New Democrats at 8%. Uh, relatively speaking, on healthcare, um, an issue that the Liberals should perhaps have an advantage. They're tied uh, statistically with the other two major parties, but no party has a clear advantage on this. We'll see whether the discussions with the provinces um, continue to, to, to shape how the public who care about this issue view it. But the all-important cost of living question, right? Uh, just inflation, as Pierre Polyev would say, or the you know calls for the Bank of Canada governor to be fired, questions around rising interest rates, uh, inflation numbers out today, they're, they're, they're slowing, but especially around food, they're still quite high. You can see the Liberals are in quite some, some trouble here, right? And, and I think all of these, all of this data that I'm sharing with you, whether it's how people feel about the issues and which party they trust, is something I'm gonna be monitoring closely in terms of understanding not just what issue is important, but as people get closer and closer to the day where they're going to decide which of these choices best serves the issue I care about, because I'm somebody uh, studied political science, was a big fan of, of a political scientist um, uh, named Harold Clark. Uh, him and his colleagues were one of the, the, the first to do Canadian election studies. And they had Harold developed this model of, of vote choice, which he called valence politics, which I think sums up basically by saying people typically outside of those who are um, ideologically or, or, or partisan driven to vote a particular way, those sort of swing, less committed voters typically vote for the party they think will do the best job on the issue they care most about. And if an election were held today, it would be very hard, I think, um, if the issue set is as I showed you for the Liberals uh, to, 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 to be reelected. Part of that is also driving people's perceptions of their choices, of the political leaders themselves. Um, we've been noting in the last number of months that the prime minister's negatives are, are at a level that in our tracking, they, they haven't been before. You have to go back to a few instances during the so-called SNC-Lavalin controversy or scandal um, to find numbers where he's getting negatives close to 50%. Now, he is not as unpopular, say, as Brian Mulroney faced in, in the early 90s, or, or if you want to think of provincial examples, Kathleen Wynne faced before she was defeated in 2018. But these are getting harder and harder 
um, for the for the prime minister, not because these are, are necessarily bad, which they are, but because it's hard to change people's opinions of you once um, once they view you in this way, particularly in a negative way. So this is a challenge. And his primary opponent at this stage, um, you know, despite some controversy, despite um, some um, you know. Uh, <laughs> Questionable things he said in order to win the leadership has been quite, I think, quiet, and and that's reflected in his numbers. That um, he's not deeply unpopular. He's not deeply popular either. Uh, but his numbers have remained relatively fat. He hasn't flat. He hasn't really moved the needle all that much. But the point I want to leave you with, as we think about the political implications of the conversation we're going to have today about where's the public at uh, on on global uh, and domestic issues, is we still remain a fairly divided country when it comes to our political choices. If, if you ask people and you only gave them two options, which any New Democrats on the, on the call will hate this question, but it shows just how divided the country actually is, that the prime minister head to head against Mr. Polyev, um, you know, wins and wins by eight points, but it's still, I think many would be surprised to see how close um, that margin actually is. But, but the advantage still is for Trudeau. If, if the, if the election or an election becomes a choice between these two gentlemen uh, to be prime minister. The last thing I'll say about how we're feeling about our political leaders, and this is more of a prediction of 2023 than, than anything else, is it feels like we're headed towards a conversation about a contest to be the least likable. This is the percentage of Canadians who have a very negative view, the most intense negative view you can have in our tracking anyways, of both Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Polyev. And what it shows is, um, you know, Mr. Trudeau's number has never been this high. And already within a few months of being leader of the Conservatives, one in five Canadians really don't like Pierre Polyev. And we're going to, I think, continue to see that number increase as this debate about who's least acceptable becomes the choice, perhaps, that Canadians are being asked to make. So I will stop there. Uh, Colin, I think my overall assessment is a mood that is dealing with constant... Um, crisis. And I think the result is that we're actually seeing a pullback of the, the public in terms of engagement with politics and in, in interest in these topics, because it feels like it's never going to end. And so that numbness that I think they're feeling um, can, can have a unpredictable effect on, on politics and their political behavior when they're asked to participate. Thanks so much. Thanks very much, David. That was terrific. Frank, I'll turn this over to you. David's help set us up by giving us the sort of where, where we are in terms of where we view our politics and the major issues and the, and the leaders. Now, please take over. Okay, so I'm going to take a, a little different look at things because uh, uh, David's covered the other stuff uh, very well. But what I want to talk about, if we could go yeah, back to the original slide, I was going to call this uh, polarization, population, and the pandemic, which is a great alliteration and really central to what's going on. But more and more, I find that people don't want to hear the word uh, pandemic. Uh, in fact, when I ask people questions like, what do you think is the most serious threat in the future? Uh, and I put on a list of things that are source of anxiety. They put the pandemic last. They want to tell you that it's over, even though when I ask them, is there still a pandemic going on? They say, oh yeah, there is. Is it going to, are things going to get worse in terms of hospitalizations and long COVID? They go, yeah. So there's this paradox, but at the bottom of this is this desire to at least temporarily pretend that it's over and we want to talk about other things. 
That's not producing an ebullient sense of, oh, thank God it's over. In fact, as I said, people don't really think it's over. And to put that in, in context, we've been polling on this uh, since March 2020, uh, when we began looking at the pandemic, recognizing it was going to be a big deal. At that time, we asked Canadians, when do you think the pandemic would be over? And the majority of them said six months. So here we are uh, going on three years that I asked them now, and the majority say it's either a couple more years or never. So it's a pretty grim mood. If I could move to the next slide. Um, you know, and I think a lot of the numbers we're seeing are being dragged down. So I would say that the overall public outlook is dark and polarized. Um, there actually isn't one public outlook. There's a lot, there's such a deep level of polarization on many of the key issues. We really have two candidates right now, but things like the pandemic, uh, problems, global supply chains, geopolitical tensions have been linked to this uniquely dark outlook on the world. But Canadians have never felt that the world has become a more dangerous pace in greater numbers than they do today. Uh, on the other hand, hidden in all that, is something really remarkable. Of all the advanced Western uh, uh, democracies, economies, Canada has uniquely shown an open pivot on many of the key areas. And this is kind of surprising because a lot of the debate about the future is partially divided on whether we should be more open or whether we should be more ordered. And I'll explain that a little bit more. But I would say that it, somewhat obscured by the volume on the uh, ordered side is the fact that on many key indicators, Canada has never been more open. So, for example, opposition to immigration is at a 50-year low. Uh, support for trade liberalization is remains high and has been going up. So it's, a, it's a, but it seems to be sort of almost a hidden or by this louder sense that everything's terrible. Now, economic outlook is poor. The vast majority of Canadians think things are going to get worse. And many incorrectly, most say that we're already in a recession, which we're not. What's interesting, I think that the views on the economic and how bad the economy are, are dramatically linked to other issues such as mistrust, disinformation and polarization. So yes, inflation is a big issue for everybody, but it is dramatically higher if you're drawn to think, for example, I think the Freedom Convoy is something I really support and identify with. So those really sharp gaps are really in interesting. Um, they don't want to talk about the pandemic. Uh, they want to talk uh, this about Healthcare, on our, our polling, and it's probably in flux, and it depends where we ask it, because we're asking about crowding and wait times. It's an at pinnacle issue, it's number one. But for those holding the ordered outlook, which I'll explain momentarily, it's actually uh, dramatically inflation and other economic issues. So you can see on a question that we've been tracking for uh, three decades, I lost all control of my economic future. It's a pretty, pretty strong statement. We're really finding numbers that are the highest we've seen since the midst of the 95 recession, and they have jumped up sharply. Those numbers are worse still for those who are uh, in this kind of populist, polarized portion of the spectrum that I'll talk about. So the pandemic paradox, it's over, but it's not really over. Uh, public views and experiences don't align with the it's over outlook. Uh, we find about a 60% of Canadians have contracted COVID, that number was 17% in February. So since all the mitigation and NPIs have been removed, we've seen a burgeoning of cases, but they're not as serious. When I asked about how serious they are, people are less likely to say they were serious as they were before. But here's the problem. So therefore they go, wow, it was no problem. Walk in the dark, I'm no, no problem. I'm not gonna get a bivalent and masking is a waste of time. So what happens is 20% get infected again, which now trebles your chance of getting long COVID, which is the hidden problem here. Because long COVID, 
unlike uh, getting COVID and, and having a relatively mild dose, you, you, you talk about that, but if you got long COVID, you go, wow, I, I was disinformed. This is terrible. Why didn't someone tell me about it? But you're not as willing to speak up. So it's relatively the balance on this. I think this is a hidden crisis, which is percolating. People say it's over, but you know, there's some, some contradictions. And I, a lot of this is driven by just, I'm sick of this. I don't want it to be uh, around me anymore. I'm going to pretend it isn't. So I want to turn to global outlook and, and, night, and note the somewhat surprising finding Despite the pandemic and heightened geopolitical tensions, uh, Canadian outlook has pivoted open. And that's not immediately obvious. If you look at a lot of the media coverage, the story of the year in Canada uh, uh, was the uh, Freedom Convoy. But that's obscuring this open pivot by the smaller group of angry and disinformed populists. And I'm not using those terms in any type of pejorative sense of not pulling them out of the air. I have hard empirical data that shows that this group actually reveals. Uh, levels of disinformation that they aren't somewhat higher. They're like 10 times higher than for the rest of the population. And I don't mean questions that we can debate. Uh, I mean, like, I think governments are concealing the real numbers of deaths from vaccines. Here's, here's a hint. They're not. You know, they're, they're, there might be some frailties in the reporting system, but they're not doing that. So if you answer all these questions in a way where you're not sure, I think these things are true. Uh, they're altering my DNA. Uh, they're making me infertile. You know, the, the differences between those who, for example, relate to the freedom movement and those and the rest of the population are literally tenfold. That's also true on things like an authoritarian populist outlook and institutional mistrust. What's also interesting is creeping into this is a, a support for an idea that had been really on hold. It had kind of lost any traction. And that's the idea of a bigger North American idea. But the geopolitical tensions throughout the world, uh, a real kind of moving away from China, a belief that Russia is, is a very dangerous place, uh, has led us to open the thought, well, maybe we should be talking about doing more continentally. And that applies to things like energy, climate, security, economy. It's not a currency union thing, but it's uh, but it is a, a really quite a significant shift, one that bears closer watching, particularly as we welcome uh, President Biden in March and, and host the summit, the North American summit next year. We could see a lot of support building for this. Everybody thinks the world is more dangerous, uh, the, and that's at pretty well an all-time high. So if it's not some kind of nasty horrible pandemic that's going to, you know, uh, come and get us. It's, you know, fears about what's going on in the Ukraine, could that spill over into the Arctic, and so on and so forth. So it's a very dark outlook. It's the only time it was higher, really, was just in the aftermath of September 11th. Uh, I think this is interesting in terms of long-term tracking. Remember the, uh, the end of history, that period where we'd solve the riddle of, you know, how to have an economy that ended business cycles, we're going to float on an infinite cloud of prosperity, uh, floated by information technology and globalization, which was hugely resonant, particularly for Canadians. That's all gone. That's gone. And it's not just the pandemic. It's been dropping throughout the last two decades. And the main reason it's dropped is because there's a sense it hasn't delivered those promises. It, quite apart from seeing the end of history, we've really seen the end of progress, at least progress in terms of the model of shared prosperity and middle-class progress, which has largely disappeared in this century. At the beginning of this century in both Canada and the United States, 70% roughly said, I locate myself in the middle class. In both countries, that dropped below 50%. That's a huge exodus. And believe me, they weren't moving into the upper class. 
That's in fact linked directly to the rise of populism that we're seeing, and this particular type of populism is being driven as authoritarian reflex by a number of factors, but what set it in motion was the collapse of middle-class progress. I'm not doing better than my, my, my parents. I can't get a house. I'm not gonna retire in comfort, and my kids aren't gonna do better than me. That's a really different outlook than what propelled much higher levels of growth in the 20th century. The historical matter of uh, rating of the Canada-U.S. relationship at the end of the Trump era with only 10%, that's that's cartoonishly low. And e even in the height of the concerns with George, uh, George Bush, it never got anywhere in that. But it rebounded strongly. And I think this last rebound reflects Canadian comfort that the midterms ended up presenting a result, which I think convinced them that maybe Americans were getting more serious about democracy. And a lot of the issues that they felt had been cast to the side. If I what I really want to draw your attention to here is in uh, 2012, the plurality of Canadians said, we should be strengthening relations with China. That's the future. That number was already in precipitous decline. It's just disappeared. It's almost subterranean now. And although Europe seems really high, actually, the, I think the more interesting thing is that the default, well, it's not, it's not the United States, but I, it actually is coming down. So this question says, given recent changes in geopolitics and globalization, you think of deeply integrated North America with shared policies on security, energy, environment would be a good idea or a bad idea. So you can see now by a margin of two to one, Canadians think that's a good idea. That plus warming outlook on the United States sets the table for a, a discussion about how could a juggernaut North America, not a currency union, be something which could be an antidote to a lot of the uh, problems we've seen emerging from the broader world in the last uh, in the last few years. I thought it was interesting when I asked about. What things reflect your deepest concerns about the future is not the traditional issue priority. What comes at the top of the list? Uh, a growing political and ideological polarization, an acute decline of our democratic and public in institutions, and a dark and diminished economy for the next generation. So it's remarkable that when I ask people what's the principal cost that comes out of the pandemic, it's not the massive government spending. It's the levels of polarization which is produced in the debates around things like mandates. So yeah, this uh, I, I would want I, look at the, we try and give an explanation of why the why this sort of authoritarian reflex and populism is occurring right now. Look at the relationship between disinformation and trust in government. You can see that if you're the more disinformed you are, you get all the questions wrong. You get you have zero trust in government. You have the same as the corollary is true. If you get all the questions right, zero percent think the freedom movement is a good thing. Uh, if you've got all the questions wrong, almost 100% think it's so polarization and, and polarization does not mean we're divided into to two equal groups. We're not. The fulcrum is balanced way over. It's probably about 60% strongly in the open, 25% strongly, very strongly in the uh, ordered side of the equation. Disinformation, I wish I had more time to talk about it because we are losing the disinformation wars as both a tool of statecraft and being amplified through things like right-wing authoritarianism. It's being, moving at an alarming pace. My clients go, wow, that's really disturbing. What do we do about it? I go, I don't know. I'm beginning to get some hints. We found, for example, that people who look the very same, who didn't bother getting extra vaccines, get abandoned masking, who get uh, long COVID, all of a sudden go, wow, disinformation is a big deal. I really wish someone had told me about this. And actually people that know them, so vicariously, they move in that direction. The other key point is that disinformation is very sticky, but it's not etched in granite. We've done repeated measures movements, and we can see that some people move in and out of the state of disinformation. We'd have to understand better how that is happening and how to combat it.
So I think we should take some solace in the fact, and it's it's somewhat occluded from public view, that Canada has remained uniquely open. Concerns about immigration in Europe and America are absolutely top-level issues. They're hot. They're not red hot here, but that extends to things like trade, diversity, human rights. Canada has never been more open, but you wouldn't think that when you look at some, some of the news coverage or some of the stories which dominated last year, and that's a bit of a paradox. And in some ways, you could argue that the ordered side with the, the benefit of disinformation and the anger and economic anxiety fueling that is punching above its weight. It's doing better. Excuse the punching one. So we see that those issues, polarization, radicalization, declining trust, disinformation, they pose a formidable set of challenges for social successfully transitioning to the post-pandemic world. Sorry, I took an extra minute there, but uh, I, I, I'd be glad to answer questions. I'm sure uh, David will uh, I have some responses to this as I do to his. Thank no, you very much. Frank, I'm going to pose this first one to you, David, and then let Frank come in. Uh, the question is, you know, there's a growing sense among experts that the war in Ukraine is going to go on and on. So my question to you is, how solid is Canadian public support for continuing to send arms and money to Ukraine, mindful that there are other pressures, both at home and abroad, pressures that you've enunciated in your both your presentations, David. So, uh, I, I think it's I think they're fairly strong. I, I don't see evidence of of yet, you know, uh, the public largely moving back of of their support for government, continuing to engage and support uh, Ukrainians and Ukraine in, in the fight. Um, I don't I don't see any evidence either. In the public opinion landscape and or at the elite level like we're seeing in the us where you're starting to see a you know republicans and, and a, a subset of the republican base sort of questioning um the us's support um and you saw it in the election of or long election of, of the speaker um in in the house of representatives um a few weeks ago so i, I think you're going to continue to see it but i do wonder as with most, as with other things, at what point does the public just lose interest um, and, and a new crisis emerges that then causes them to sort of move towards um, another issue? My belief is on, on an issue like this, the public, like, like a lot of, you know, uh, global issues takes their cues from their leaders. And as long as the leadership in Canada continues, whether it's conservative, liberal, you know, regardless of the partisanship, continues to say this is something we need to do and it's it's something we can do, I think you're going to continue to find support. Because if there's anything Canadians agree on across the political spectrum um, in the work I've done is, is how bad a guy Vladimir Putin is and how much of a threat um, Russia face, uh, plays or, or is to security and stability in the world. And, and so as long as those factors remain um, consistent, I think you're going to find that the public will will continue to support our meaningful contribution to that effort. Thanks, David. You know, Frank, it really is a meaningful contribution. We're now going to provide um, missile defense system, something we haven't got ourselves. But uh, the support for Ukraine, would you concur with David that, again, you've got all party support, public opinion seems to be there, that while parts of the West may be have, have differing views, particularly in Europe, as they can. Although the winter's gone pretty well, um, do you see any shift there? I, yeah, I do agree with David, uh, but I'd like to add an important dimension that I think is underlying this that may not be obvious. Uh, and yes, we have seen 
that concerns with uh, the war in Ukraine have, uh, as time gone on, they've gone down somewhat. Um, and, but at the beginning, and, and it, this remains relatively solid, there's strong support uh, for, you know, helping Ukraine in, in pretty well every way, every way possible, short of boots on the ground. Uh, Canadians want to give lethal, non-lethal aid. They strongly support sanctions against Russia. The vast majority think that uh, Russia is committing more crimes and so on and so forth. But here's a really interesting phenomenon which has crept in. I broke those data down, for example, when I asked of this list of things that we could do, uh, only 2%, 2 uh, overall, I look at people who were vaccinated and not vaccinated, I thought, why would they be any different? So only 2% of unvaccinated people said we shouldn't be doing anything in Ukraine. It was 25 times higher if you had been not vaccinated and mm -hmm. the people who had stopped it too. So this is really a pretty vivid illustration of the power of disinformation. And I know because I sit on some international groups that Russia was pouring out a five-point plan of disinformation. I didn't know when I got those results. My data actually, uh, my report appeared on the front of Russia today. That's great. Their take was, oh, look at all those dumb people that took the vaccine. They don't really understand what's truly going on in Russia. But this group would now have views that, yeah, you know what? The, the Ukraine's not a real country. There's Nazis there. The Russian speakers in the Donbass were being persecuted. And, you know, they're building bioweapons. Look, the group that believed these things could not have located Ukraine on a map two weeks before these questions were asked, but suddenly they believed these theories. They then get amplified in North America, and you get about a quarter of Canadians who's not sympathetic are, are not nearly of the same view on these issues as the rest of us. And whether the issue is climate change or what is the true state of the economy or whether it's what we do about the pandemic, these huge differences, they're not small differences. They're massive difference. Like I said, 25-fold difference. On some of these things, I, I've never seen differences of this extent. And I think we better get a big a handle pretty quickly on how to, how to confront this, because it's having a hugely corrosive impact on our democracy, the public interest, public health, and we really are not winning this battle. Okay, Frank, my next question is related in part to Ukraine, although it takes a different area. The U.S. and the U.N. are both looking to Canada to lead the peacemaking effort in Haiti. Mindful of our previous interventions in Haiti and our Afghanistan experience, do you think the public will support intervention that could go on and on if history is any guide? The evidence is the Canadians are... They're pretty pragmatic and rational about this. They, they're, they're worried about human suffering and human rights and so forth. Uh, remember that, you know, they, they, they were in the lead up, for example, to the uh, Iraq war, the, there was very, very strong support for going to there in Canada, which all dissipated in the final stages. So this could be pretty turbulent. I think, uh, and anything which is going to go on and on, like uh, Afghanistan, you know, you will find fatigue building as time goes on. But right now, I would think Canadians would say, yes, we should be weighing in. I actually should probably pull on that to get a more empirically informed answer. But I would think there would be a sympathy with uh, weighing in, in in Haiti. David, it's in our hemisphere, and Canadians tend to be generous. But would this be the kind of thing that the government could consider intervening, knowing that it comes with complications, knowing that we have history there? How would you see it in terms of what you've Seen yeah, over time. I, I, I tend to agree with, with Frank. I don't think initially there would be much resistance to it. I think people understand we have a role to play. We don't have the most mighty armed forces 
in the world, but we do have uh, a particular skill set and a history and a legacy of, of, of peacekeeping, peacemaking, um, that I think is still tied to our identity and, and, and the political culture in the country. So I think initially you'd find uh, support, but with any military endeavor, right, the news coming out of it is what will likely affect how people react to it over time. And so if you see um, you know, casualties, if you see uh, a significant increase in, in costs and, and those are leading, then I think is you're going to find support decline. But I, I, I right now, I, I think if, if Frank or I put a, a question into the field saying, you know, if asked, should we step up and do it? I would say most people would say yes. There will be opposition, um, but I don't think you'd find, particularly in the Liberal Party coalition, a lot of opposition to it. So I don't know if it's politically risky uh, for the Liberal government to, to have to think about doing this. Okay, thanks, David. And I want you to lead on this next question. With great power competition extending into the Arctic, will Canadians support the billions that be required to assert our sovereignty? We know that the costs will be high, being pressured by the Americans. Uh, NATO would like, is, is conscious of what's going on. Where are Canadians in terms of spending the money that we would probably have to spend to assert our sovereignty in the Arctic? I think if, if it's, again, it all comes back to how this problem is defined and, and why we need to do it. Um, I do think, again, uh, the public's typically quite logical and rational about some of this stuff. Um, and when you get into the big numbers that I suspect, Colin, we are going to need to spend to do this, people can actually relate to it, right? Like, you know, last week you have an announcement where we're going to spend $80 billion on new fighter jets. Um, I think if we asked some questions on a survey or we explored that deeply, people would be questioning, do we need to spend that much? Why is it that much? Why do they cost so much? Um, but ultimately, I think can be convinced that we need, you know, um, the most, well, first, our jets are aging. And two, we need to replace them with something that has as a capacity and a capability that those that the minister and others say those have. I think the same could be made for, for our need to invest in the Arctic, right? As people recognize, and they've been deeply sensitized to melting ice caps, right? To this idea that the Arctic, like, then that is going to create the opportunity to have a conversation about why the Arctic is a different place today. And you now have a Russia that is in clear, in, in the public's mind, clearly expansionist and willing to, you know, step beyond uh, what we would maybe consider in, in normal times um, normal behavior, I think you'd find support for it. But with all things, it, it, it will all depend on how it's communicated and sold to, to the public. Okay, then let me just bury that to you, Frank. What What is the pitch the government has to make? Because it's not just, uh, David mentions the Russians, but the Chinese are there as well. And certainly your polling showed Canadians don't, I guess, see China as much more of a yeah, threat than they were. I wish we had updated. We, in the past, have done all the Arctic Rim countries, including Russia, Scandinavia, and we had Alaska and Canada. And it is an area of tremendous concern where Canadians look at this quite differently than the other members of the Arctic Rim countries. And there are some that feel that the Arctic Rim countries, because of climate change, which is going to be bad for all, but much less so for Arctic Rim countries, that they will possibly redefine 
uh, and have much more be the next emergent geopolitical superpowers because of what's going to happen in the next 50 years, because of the abundance of minerals there, because of the, uh, you know, the fully navigable northern, not just northern passage, the Arctic Ocean. So this is a, an area which has got a lot of attention and which is particularly important to Canadians. Canadians put a lot more emphasis, I, if I was to, to advise those who want, you know, Canada to pull its weight more in things like military spending, I would frame it around Arctic sovereignty because that is an issue that really has Canadians' attention and where I think they would be, and particularly now, you know, there was already concerns about Russia and China before, but those have got to have been magnified by what's gone on, not just in the Ukraine, but this, you know, withering of Canadian enthusiasm for dealing with China. So I would frame things at least in, in large measure uh, around that because it is a, a real you know area of con existential concern for Canadians. Okay, well, th thank you very much. Now let me turn to my colleague, David Perry, who's going to summarize your questions. David. There's an awful lot of questions. We're going to try and pull them together into three different groupings. Um, one related to international trade, another to North America, and then a third to immigration. So uh, related to international trade, um, David, for you in particular, uh, with your your work about financial anxiety, are people linking that in any way, positive or negative, uh, with the international trading regime and what we've seen in terms of industrial policy lately? Or can you offer a comment on um, the link between people's perceptions of the economy and the international dimension to it. Second one related to North America, several questions on that. Um, one, in your respective methodologies, when you're doing polling, do you include Mexico as part of North America um, or not? Do the questions ask about Canada and the United States? Second question related to the North American theme, do Canadians think of North America as a three country grouping or is it Canada and the United States? Mm -hmm. And then lastly, um, what are the perceptions of Canadians about integrated North America and, and that being a desirable political entity versus a more integrated West or Western hemisphere? And then the last question um, on immigration and trying to uh, link that with concerns about Canadian, the Canadians have about healthcare. Um, are Canadians viewing immigration and what the government plans for expansion of that um, as a potential concern about access to healthcare and other uh, related issues? I mean, there's um, potential uh, problems uh, with supply of housing, as an example. What is your sense of, of how immigration is potentially going to link into some of the other key issues of concern to the population? So to, to summarize, international trade and anxiety, North America, immigration. Uh, David, I'd start with you. Okay, I'm gonna, Frank, I'll let you take the whole North American Mexico question because I know you've done some work in that space recently. Um, just briefly on, on who does the public, fundamentally you're asking, I think David, who does the public blame or what do they think is causing the inflationary crisis that so many people are experiencing? And there's, there's really two perspectives. One is if you are someone who supports the current federal government, you are much more likely to think this is a global problem caused by global um, effects. And I don't, I don't, I haven't done any research that that digs deep to understand do people think it's caused by, you know, um, trade agreements or 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 the way that that trade is is structured in the ground in the world. I think people recognize that look, the price of oil went up because there's a war in Ukraine. Um, that the price for certain goods um, and the uh, has been caused by supply chain disruptions, which is caused by a pandemic, which, you know, I think people recognize that our, our world is deeply integrated and that it, it's hard to disentangle ourselves from that. 
but I also think, you know, there's a growing number of people who think that uh, a number of decisions that the uh, governments in Canada, whether federal or provincial, have made have made inflation worse than it would otherwise be. And so it's become a political problem. But I don't see any evidence, at least in the work that I've done or, or I've seen, that people are questioning um, international trade. Like I just did some, some research um, for Policy Magazine on, on the free trade agreement. And uh, there's no opposition to free trade, for example, with the United States or, or North America. But I think there's less enthusiasm than there's been in the past. And so it's either because people are complacent or maybe they are starting to question that. Uh, I'll just jump in on the, the immigration question you, you raised. It's something I always think about. And I know, Frank, you've been tracking, you, you talked about you know the number of people open to immigration is going up. And we see other data that shows this. I actually think the public's not, not thinking about how will new immigrants take spots in a hospital or with, because they are so um, uh, clearly focused on what one of the primary causes of this healthcare crisis is, which is a lack of people in the system. And so I think there's support for increasing immigration in part because people have experienced um, a whole set of services they used to rely on and just assume would happen, healthcare being one of them, not having enough people. And as long as that remains the primary frame by which we're making decisions, because we need skills, we need workers, I think you're going to see sustained levels of support for, for, for keeping these historic high levels of immigration um, uh, high in, across the country. Thanks, David. Frank? Let me work backward and I'll add a, just a point on the immigration, which I agree with uh, David's point uh, uh, completely. But I, I want to point out that this may not be obvious to Canadians, but we're one of the oldest countries in the world. Like, you know, you throw out maybe Italy and Japan and we're right up there. Our median age is approaching 43. To put that in context, at our centennial, the median age was 26. So we it's not just that we have foundations in multicultural policy, which is a factor, and that immigration in Canada, unlike other places, it works really well here. Guess why? We need it more and we can cherry pick. So we don't have to see, like in Sweden, where it's become a huge issue, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people showing up uninvited on the door and, and causing real disruption. In Canada, it's, it's been managed much better and we need it much more. So it's not just a matter of you know moral virtue, it's a, it's a pragmatic need. We need people to pay the bills, to pay taxes and to staff our healthcare facilities. That's why, for example, support for immigration seems to be highest in the places which have the worst healthcare like in the Atlantic. So enough, that's, that's my contribution to that point, but I don't think it's gonna go away. And I actually think it's, it's ultimately a real strength for Canada. We are a big empty country that you know can easily accommodate a huge influx in population. And so I think this is something, if we're right, that Canada could be part of this emergent sort of uh, axis of, of uh, Arctic Rim countries, which are an emergent uh, superpower, that we really need to have a lot more people by the time we get to 2050, which also leads to the, the question of sort of why this heightened interest in North America? And the questions are, does it include Mexico? Emphatically, yes. We've done this study on uh, five different occasions. It's now getting out of date, but in each case, last time I did it with uh, Robert Pastor and Miguel Bastinez, who was uh, one of the preeminent Yale guys dealing with world values, also was at that point the ambassador from Mexico to the United States. But we have included Mexico every time 
and they should be included uh, in thinking about it. Do Canadians think about North America as U.S.-Canada? No, they think about North America as U.S.-Canada and Mexico. And they like the idea of Mexico being part of the framing because whether this is delusional or not, it deals with their fears that in a straight bilateral kind of deeper integration with the United States, we would be kind of immersed in and swamped by the, uh, in the, you know, the sleeping with the elephant, you know, the elephant's going to really dominate where they think there might be some antidote in a continental framing. It also, I think, if you, you know, recognize that Mexico's had a few, I lost some of the movement it had, but some had projected that Mexico could be as, as strong as the sixth or seventh largest economy in the world by 2050. Canada's already sort of uh, up around eight, and with, you know, more immigration, that could, you could have as, an American's, you know, everyone said China was going to be the winner, but it looks like America's showing uh, surprising robustness and strength. So that would be a juggernaut, and I don't think it would preclude dealing with the external world. Neither are Canadians looking at this, nor are other citizens in the other countries looking at this as a currency union or an as a kind of an alternative Maastricht treaty. No, they're looking at it as something more pragmatic, but one that where we cooperate in a deeper fashion on the issues which matter most, which in this case are economy, energy, climate and security. Uh, so uh, did I miss anything? Uh, was if there... you had a thought on international trade uh, yeah, and maybe yeah, also industrial we do, policy. We, we did an update of an, an annual survey we do with global affairs on international trade and the actions remain very positive. And I don't think it's uh, simply, and so what I'd like to point out is we've seen the sharp decline in interest in what was seen as our preferential partner, trading partner for the future, which was China. So you and there is also so you've got a bit of a vacuum there. Canadians have be, are just as ardent supporters of trade liberalization as they were in the past. In fact, our most recent polling shows it going up. So if you've got this vacuum now created because you know we want to trade, but not necessarily with China uh, and some of the other parts of you know that, that part parts of the world, that really opens up this idea of North America once again because that's a big big and there's no Canadians are very enthusiastic about Europe as well. Uh, in fact, it's, they say that outstrips America's source where they want to uh, create more trade in the future. The problem there is, from what I've seen from a survey way done by the European Council, this ardor for uh, Europe from Canada and North America is not, it's unreciprocated love. The, uh, the Europeans uh, are at least as concerned with what's going on in China and feel that China will ultimately win this economic battle for economic hegemony with the United States. So they don't want, they, they're being much more cautious. Yeah, they like the fact that Joe Biden's in power rather than Donald Trump. So again, that weighs into even more favorable emphasis on a bigger North American idea. Uh, and I like that framing of a North American idea, which Robert Pastor used. It's, it's, it's really something quite different from what we've seen in other regions. But yeah, I think Canadians remain strongly committed, if not more so, to pre which is surprising given, you know, what's come down in terms of exposed to the fragility of, of global supply chains, it's linked to inflation, and all those sorts of things. You think this would have really but support for globalization is down. So that's interesting. The Canadians draw a sharp distinction between globalization and trade liberalization. Okay, Dave, unless you've got another question, I'm going to, uh, Back to you, move Colin. to the final question. Okay. Uh, well, my, my final question for, as you know, is uh, what are you reading or streaming these days? And as we go into 2023, and I'll start with you, Frank, and then move to you, David, what would you recommend our listeners and the audience 
uh, read or watch to help situate themselves, aside from turning to the very good work that you have, uh, both of you, on your websites? David. Oh, my. Well, you know, I'm just starting it, so I can't say I, whether I would recommend it, but I just got a copy of um, George Gallup and Bob Ray's father, Saul Ray, wrote a book in the 1940s. I had not read it before about public opinion. And the intro to that book talks about America coming out of, in the midst of about to go into war, right? World War II uh, under Nazis had just uh, invaded uh, Poland and the debate about whether America is going to join that effort or not. Um, I, I'm just, um, it just reminded me of how much things repeat themselves. Um, so I can't say I would, I would recommend it. It may not be relevant as much anymore, but uh, that's what I'm reading right now. Okay, um, where, where did you find it? Because it's probably, is it back in print or? No, I found an old <laughs> second printing copy <laughs> on like uh, a used book site somewhere, got shipped. I don't even know where it came from, but I found it and it arrived actually just a few days ago. So I started reading it this weekend. So I'm okay, excited well, to a, dig into it. There's a very good reminiscence of by Bob Ray in the, in the latest policy magazine, which I think you've also written in as well. Frank, what are you reading and what do you recommend people read? Because I know you are a big well, reader. Actually, I've actually teaching a graduate course in my, my old department of sociology and anthropology, where I'm an adjunct professor again. Uh, not again, I am. And that reading of Ray and Gallup is on the list when we go through history. And also know that Carlton punched way above its weight in terms of the development of polling and planet, including you know, Frick, uh, young stars like yourself. But we also had Angus Reed, Alan Gregg was at Carlton. Uh, there was. Uh, 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 Bruce Anderson. It, it, it really was. Daryl Bricker. Pretty, yeah. But what are you reading? Uh, I, I would recommend uh, everybody read because it's short and really good. Uh, the um, On Tyranny by Timothy Snyder. And if you want, if that doesn't make you pay attention to these twenty lessons from the twentieth century, uh, read Anna Applebaum's The uh, The Twilight of Democracy. Both cheery reads. Uh, Perfect, Frank. And, and we will, of course, link to these uh, in the program notes, uh, including that, that wonderful list you did provide. And, and as you pointed out, encouraging people to pick up Tim Schneider and Ann Applebaum. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you, David. And thank you, Frank. And thank you, audience. We were joined today by David Coletto and Frank Graves. You can find, as I say, a link to the research on the podcast website. My thanks to producer Charlotte Duval-Antoine and to David Perry for fielding the questions and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Colin Robertson. Thanks for joining us today on the Global Exchange.